It's Dr. Seuss Podcast with me, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, and my protege, Bliss Young. We're back for podcast number 120-120. We're getting up there, Bliss. How are <laughs> in, you today? In more ways than one, we're getting up there. We're getting up there. Um, I'm good. Good. So you can find us at drstewspodcast.com. Of course, if you're listening, you probably already have found us. So whatever you, how you ever found us, just keep finding us. You can also find us on iTunes. You can give us five stars there if you want. You can email me at askdrstew at gmail.com. You can email bliss at uh, birthingbliss.com. Correct. And uh, well, today we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to get right into it today because we got uh, producer John on a schedule and we also have a lot to talk about because we're going to talk about the, um, the, new, uh, the new or the revised ACOG American College of OBGYN um, uh, VBAC guidelines, which just came out uh, mm-hmm. this past in this month of November 2017. Uh, but before I do, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, three recent uh, VBAC transports that I had. You know, my VBAC success rate in my first 150 home births was, or I guess it was 135, was um, 93%. Now it's down a little bit from that, but it's still well well over 85%. And 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 that includes VBAC after two, VBAC after threes. Um, so the success rate is very, very high, but this past week, uh, not, well, this past month I had three very interesting, uh, VBAC transports and I wanted to talk a little bit about it and vent and yes, you have a, I have you, a you don't I'm have raising to, my hand. she's raising her hand. I just want people to know that at home on the radio, she's raising her hand. I have a question. It just came into my mind. Sure. So when we're talking about VBAC statistics for home birth. If they go to the hospital and they still have a successful VBAC, yes, is it not count as a success in your statistics? No, not not as far as it counts as a successful VBAC, but not not when I quote my successful rate at home. Yeah, okay. It's the same thing with breech births. Uh, when I used to have Doctor Wu available, I I think in my breech paper that's coming out, we have an eighty percent success rate with breech birth at home, but we have an eighty four percent overall success rate. Because two of the ten women who got transported um, had v- vaginal deliveries with Doctor Wu, which of course is no longer available. So, I, I'd like to stick with the statistics of people who have successful VBACs at home. Okay. When I'm just talking, but that's not even what we're talking about today. I was just throwing that out there. But uh, I think it's interesting to to think about if we're talking about the success of VBACs, because sometimes the success that I've had with VBACs f- culminated at the hospital. Yeah. But if they had started in an obstetric practice or started at the hospital, we we assumed, we don't know for sure, but that it would not have been successful. It was the combination of the two. Oh, uh, there's no doubt in yeah. my mind. I mean, if you look at if you look at the manistats, um, the success rate of VBAC in the manistats is, I think, 93%. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that includes transports or if that includes whatever. But anyway, yeah. there's, no, there's no hospital in the country that has a success rate close to that. I mean, even if you look at the NIH VBAC consensus statement or you look at um, some of the other uh, data or even in Jen Camel's VBAC facts, uh, which has a plethora of information, and I refer people, anybody who's interested in knowing more detail about VBAC, to go to vbacfacts.com, you'll find that the success rate is quoted somewhere around 70% in the NIH VBAC consensus statement, and a lot of hospitals have a 56, 57 percent success rate. And I think that the real difference between their success rate and the success rate at home can be attributed to simply the midwifery model of care mm-hmm. and the fact that people at home are not restricted in movement. They're not starved. They're not constantly interrupted. They're not surrounded by people who are nervous. They're, not, they're allowed to move about 
and do the things that make labor because VBAC is really just labor. Right. We always include it as a procedure like breach or twins, but uh, it's not. VBAC is just basically having a, uh, a normal labor. And, and how, why is breach and twins a procedure? Well, it, 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 it's an, ab- you know, it, I guess breach and twins is an abnormality. Even yeah. though I consider it to be, you know, breach first to succeed a variation of normal. But I'm just saying, in general, often people will say VBAC breach and twins. Like ACOG's guidelines for home births say VBAC breach and twins, and they include them in the same sentence as if they're the sort of the same thing. When VBAC and twin, I mean, breach and twins sort of requires a little bit of a different skill. Whereas VBAC, it doesn't require any special skill that uh, anybody who delivers babies can't do. Right. Okay, so. I get that. Right. Anyway, getting back to the stories, I, I just want to um, go through them briefly. There were three women. Uh, one woman, was, two of the women I had cared for through their pregnancy, and one I, I, I got at the, like three, four days before she went into labor, and I'll explain that to you. Um, I'll start with her. Right, this is a woman who um, had a, one previous cesarean section. Um, I won't get into the details of the reasons why, but she, she never got to labor very long. She, I think she got to three or four centimeters and then, you know, got the whole cascade of interventions and ended up with a cesarean section with her first baby. In her subsequent pregnancy, she's pregnant, she's seeing a midwife, and even though this person has a lot of medical knowledge, the person who's pregnant, at 36 weeks, she finally gets an ultrasound. She hadn't had one the entire pregnancy and finds out she has twins. <laughs> Wow. So it's rather interesting that uh, that she had twins for 36 weeks and didn't know it. Yeah. So at that point, obviously, the midwife can't do a VBAC with her alone. So they bring her in for a consultation, find out the first twin is breech, second twin is head down, right up my <laughs> right up my alley. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, she, about two days later, three days later, at 30, I think 36 weeks in a day or two, she goes into labor. Um, she's pretty far out, uh, she's like 80 miles outside of Los Angeles. So I drive out there and she's doing great. And she gets to, um, 10 centimeters or so and starts to push and starts suddenly getting some searing constant mid lower abdominal pain Mm. in the area of her previous scar. Mm -hmm. Okay. Baby's heart rates are perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's no variable decelerations. She's not febrile. She hasn't been ruptured that long. Uh, there's no fee. Oh, I said that already. <laughs> um, but, and the baby's a uh, breach, and she's probably at zero to maybe plus one stage. The baby's complete breach. She can feel a little foot. Um, and she's completely dilated. And she can't sit still. She can't be comfortable. She can't find a comfortable position. And we basically had a long, a very short discussion, and she very easily made the decision that she was going to we transport her to the hospital because you suspected because we're worried about the possibility of her scar separating. Right, and so for people who are learning more about attending VBACs and being responsible and understanding the signs, that's one of them. Is that is that pain that's distinct from contraction? discomforts that is usually in between contractions as well constant yeah sharp in the area of the old scar uh the truth is however most people who have a scar dehiscence often have no symptoms until the very time that it happens sometimes you'll hear variable decelerations in the heart rate of the babies or you'll see a change in station Mm -hmm. but uh, she had none of that but she had this pain so she went to the hospital and she had a c-section 
and she did not have a ruptured uterus, mm-hmm. and we have no explanation for the the pain. Mm-hmm. But it was pretty Im- impressive to watch her and and listen to her uh, describe it, and there was no question that it was the right decision to make. And talking to her after, as you'll as you'll see with the other two women, that she was not disappointed mm-hmm. because she, she knew she could do it, and she got and and should this not have happened. There's very little doubt in my mind that that she would have delivered these babies at home. Now, it's also fortuitous that she ended up going to the hospital because the baby B, which was the head down baby, uh, which wasn't ruptured during the labor, ended up having to go to the NICU because it had respiratory problems and it required CPAP. And if that baby had been born at home, I'm sure within an hour or so, we would have had to transfer the baby to the hospital. So sometimes these things work out. As we all know, who we're in the you know we maybe we're rationalizing in our head, but sometimes it all works out that she ended up in the place that she needed to be. It feels that way when we're you know I mean it doesn't always happen obviously that way, but it feels like I I also tell moms who I know are going to be disappointed with transporting you know that I trust I trust birth and I trust that when it's not working it's because they're they're meant to be there for some reason and we've had this several times where there's been an issue with the baby that we didn't know ahead of time that you know we're really glad that we were there yeah and the, and uh, and the lesson for me from all, from this and some of these other clients is that even if you know you have to trust your guidelines and your instincts and when this is a possibility that the uterus is rupturing you don't want to wait and see what happens you need to listen to yourself you need to go and just because the outcome you know, it's funny. We have a great outcome, and then then the practitioners we sit and we're disappointed <laughs> because uh, maybe we, we didn't need to transport. No, we needed to transport her. Mm-hmm. And the idea of transporting and getting a great outcome is the right thing. You don't want <laughs> you don't want to prove that you needed to transport by having a bad outcome. Right. Right. Yeah. If so. we get those signs, being on the conservative side of things and knowing that we're in a place that can accommodate what we're suspecting might actually be true is the, is the right decision for most right. practitioners. And that baby's taking some time to get better. And by the time this podcast airs, I'm sure the baby will be home. But Yeah. It, and it was informed consent. You had a conversation with the mom. You told her what your concerns were and she made the decision. Right? Yeah. And she was very, very well educated. Yeah. It just is interesting, however, that she was so well educated, but she didn't realize that she had twins which yeah but she was with a midwife and the midwife didn't know either so well uh, yes okay yes (laughs) i wouldn't expect the mom to know well uh i'm not giving out details about Uh the mom the mom was in the medical profession Mm -hmm. so yeah it's a very interesting thing i mean again uh very natural uh family um uh just didn't want interventions Mm mm-hmm you know, probably didn't have Doppler listening, probably maybe had a uh, fetoscope or whatever at prenatal visits. And, uh, but whatever reason, it finally at some point <laughs> decided to get an ultrasound. And I'm glad they did because otherwise she would have been one of those rare, rare people now. It used to be that 50% of twins were diagnosed in labor in the 50, you know, prior to 1960s or 70s when ultrasound came into being. Now it's pretty rare. I saw this amazing video when I was in school and they showed us this um, video of a home birth where the midwife was by herself unexpectedly. She didn't plan it this way, but she was there by herself and the woman had older kids. So somebody was watching the older kids and it was a surprise twin. And um, she dropped her (laughs) Doppler into the tub because she was so shocked. And so she had to go find another Doppler because she got another heartbeat after the first one came out, which was, it was just, we just all were like, oh my God, I can't imagine how we would handle that. But yeah. 
Anyway, so a good outcome and listening to your instincts. So that's one thing that I'm trying to stress here. Mm -hmm. uh, second one was also a, um, a, a VBAC who also lived about 80 miles from Los Angeles. <laughs> they like, love this you. This is happening. <laughs> um, she, was, she had uh, a previous C-section for twins at, and she never got past three centimeters. Uh, so she really wanted to have a VBAC and she got to 40 weeks and she was in an area that's fairly hostile to VBAC. People down in Southern California know what I'm talking about. No, you can't say. Oh, sure, I can say Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. All right. And uh, so at 40 weeks, she, uh, you know, she's still pregnant and at 41 weeks, she's still pregnant and, and at 42 weeks, she's still pregnant. Now, at some point we had to do, we had to start biophysical profile testing. I mean, that's sort of, again, one of the standards that we recommend. What's and your standard on that one? Generally 41 and a half to 42 weeks, mm -hmm. certainly not 40 weeks in one day or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But it, it's individualized. It really depends. And because I live, uh, they live so far from my office, we agreed to uh, did some of the testing up there. But of course the environment up there is not favorable to VBACs. Oh, I forgot to mention, by the way, the baby's breech. <laughs> so she's VBAC and breech, which mm -hmm. is sort of why, more reason why I was involved, right. is Frank breech. But she'd been my client all along, just so happened the baby also was breech. So you know, we uh, it worked out great. Um, so she was going to have testing at the uh, maternal fetal medicine group up there, where there's only one. And I decided I was going to drive up and go to the testing with them because nice I didn't want to make them drive down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's hard at 42 weeks to do that. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I drove up and I introduced myself when I got there and in, in nobody really came to, nobody, no, none of the physicians came out to say hello, which was probably fine. They were busy, but I'm, I'm still saying they knew that I was there and they know who I am right. and none of them made an effort to say hello. Anyway, she went through the testing and the NST was not reactive by distinct criteria. There were no D cells on it, but it was, there were some excels, but they didn't meet the strict uh, 15 beats above baseline for 15 seconds, two and 20 minute. They use two and 15 minutes up there, but two and 20 minute uh, excels. So she was considered a non-reactive tracing. And then they looked at the biophysical profile and she had a fluid pockets of uh, over six centimeters, um, which is low, but very typical in Frank breaches. Um, they also uh, looked for fetal breathing, and they didn't see fetal breathing, okay. but they looked for no more than probably 30 seconds. Okay. And fetal breathing, you're supposed to look for 10 or 15 minutes. Now, no one really does that, but I got the impression, and so did the family. The husband was in the room with me. We all got the impression that when they found out that she's 42 weeks in breach in the previous cesarean section, they were going to do whatever they could to find, make the testing imply that she needed to be delivered. Well, That's a cynical part on my uh, cynical view on my point, but it's but it's based on experience. Well, with the ultrasounds, you can kind of bias it a little bit, can't you? Of course you can. Yeah, yeah. Of course you can, and since they don't allow VBACs up there and they don't do breaches up there, and they they're not thinking, they don't really know what her overall plan is. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm not sure even they knew why I was there, but um, so it was really interesting to see them do that. But but. I felt that the fluid was fine. I felt that they didn't give the baby. I felt the tracing was not suspicious. So we agreed that we would repeat the fetal heart rate tracing the next day. And the midwives up there have a fetal heart. No, oh. up there. Mm -hmm. They just can't do the biophysical ultrasound part, mm -hmm. but they can do an NST. And you can't do it with your My portable ultrasound, ultrasound she's busted. Oh, it's dead. It's still busted. But mm -hmm. by the time this airs, I hopefully will have a new one. Um, so the NST was beautifully reactive the next morning. So we agreed to wait until Monday 
And then Monday, we, she'd have to be tested again. This was on Saturday. She had the... And then I think Sunday night, she went into labor, or Monday, it was, went into, so she was in labor. So I drove up to Santa Barbara with my student, and the midwife uh, was partaking from Santa Barbara. And she was doing great. And she got to eight centimeters complete and plus two. Uh, baby, water was still intact. Heart rate was fine. Uh, then uh, her mother, who doesn't speak any English, uh, she's Italian, comes running out of the room, says, come, 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 come quick, or in Italian, or whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> um, and uh, she ruptured the membranes, and on the floor was the thickest, mm. most chocolatey, chilliish looking meconium stain. Not, I couldn't call it fluid, really. <laughs> it was, Maybe it was paste. Breach. Right? Yeah, but it wasn't the toothpaste type breach stuff that you'd expect. It was mm-hmm. very thick meconium. Mm-hmm. Now, she's 42 weeks and two days with very thick meconium. I'm thinking in my head, you know, there's such a thing as post-maturity syndrome. I'm not worried about meconium aspiration. Meconium aspiration is often misinterpreted. The baby's heart rate was fine. Again, she had a biophysical profile a day or two before. But in all our teachings mm-hmm. with meconium, especially midwives, when you have three plus or four plus meconium, this was clearly three to four plus meconium. I don't know how you could be any more plus than this. Mm-hmm. Then transport is the thing that you suggest that they do. Mm-hmm. Now, we knew if we transported that she's going to have a C-section no matter where we take her. Right. But we had a conversation and we agreed that that was the right smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. So instead of going to the local hospital, though, we drove to 40 minutes down to Ventura where we had a much friendlier reception and um, she got there, the baby's heart rate was fine, she was now completely dilated. Um, and the uh, physician said, I thought for a second about letting her labor, but I just there's too much politics here and not gonna happen. So she had a C-section, a repeat C-section, and she had a nine pound, 12 ounce baby, which of course is a fairly large baby, and. I have my guidelines on estimated fetal weight. That would have been above my guidelines on estimated fetal weight. So I'm thinking, well, maybe this baby needed to come in and be delivered that way for that reason. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's the second one because all three of these have one thing in common, which I will talk about after I go about the third one. And she, mom did fine. They went home in two days. Uh, everybody did great. The third one was a VBAC after two C-sections who... Never got past three centimeters with either, uh, I think with her first one, and then she went to have a VBAC with her second one, but sort of got scared in labor very early on and just acquiesced to having a repeat C-section. And then she got educated, and then she got pregnant again, and she really decided that she wanted to do a VBAC. But of course, she wasn't going to get much support at any of the local hospitals. So she approached me. Her only other issue was that she has chronic hypertension. Mm-hmm. And she really has chronic hypertension. I mean, she's only 34 she on years old. Well, she wasn't when I met her, mm-hmm. but we put her on, we started her on medication. Initially, we started her on Aldamet, and we increased the dose over several, over many weeks, up to the maximum, which is about two grams a day. And her blood pressures were still running about 150 over 90, and then they got up to like 150 over 96. And so we added nifedipine. And in the meantime, I also had her have a consult with our good friend down here, uh, Dr. Chavira who, in case her blood pressure got out of control, would still offer her the option of having a, a VBAC at the hospital that he was working at. Great. So we had a good plan for home. We had very, she was very reassured by the fact that she could still have her home birth as long as her blood pressures remained 
reasonable, even though people think that 150 over 90 is not reasonable, but that's her normal blood pressure. And so I was comfortable with that. Um, or she could go to the hospital if her blood pressures were out of whack. So of course she goes into labor at, uh, on, I think on her due date or the day before her due date. And, um, she's in early labor and she takes her blood pressure and it's a little bit high. She says 150 something over 96. So I come down because it's early and I want to make sure that it's okay for her to be laboring her. And I check her exam and she's four centimeters, completely effaced, um, bulging bag of waters, doing great on all fours. We get her comfortable. I take her blood pressure and it's 170 over 115. Okay. Now she's taking her medication. She's very compliant. And I take it again like 10 minutes later and it's 170 over 114. And I said, this is too high. Mm. I don't have any way of controlling your blood pressure. So I gave her an extra dose of nifedipine orally. And they, we, we agreed to go to the hospital. That was our plan. And she went to the hospital where Dr. Chavira was working that day. She ended up having an unmedicated VBAC after two C-sections in the, in the hospital. Okay. And her blood pressure never actually went up much higher than 150 over 90 or, uh, or so at the hospital. But it might have been from the extra dose of nifedipine. I, I really can't explain it. But we transported for the proper indications. We had good collaboration. We had it set up in advance. And uh, the one, of the one of the rare people that would have done this for us. So God bless him. Yes. And um, we ended up with a, a VBAC and a mother who couldn't be happier knowing that her body um, could do this because mm-hmm. for, for all three of these women, right, it was really, really important for them to have that option of laboring and having a, a, a trial of labor after cesarean. Right. Um, there are people that want to get rid of the terminology trial of labor because it makes it sound like it's, uh, it could, you know, it can fail and stuff. It's a, it's one of these word things we, we often talk Words about. Words are important. Words are important. But nonetheless, the, the moral of the story is that all three of these women were so happy with their outcome mm-hmm. because the two that ended up with cesarean sections, both of them got to completely dilate it. And both of them knew that, you know, barring other circumstances, their their bodies could do it. Yeah. And the difference that that's going to make for them, for all three of these women, for the rest of their life, is something that people that automatically knee-jerk ban VBAC or go to repeat C-section or discourage it, they don't have an understanding about how important that is. Right. It's because, you know, the the mother... And her experience um, are not as important as um, the outcome. And I think that women are really wanting to be acknowledged for the fact that that is a really important part for them and that they need to be participating in the decision making. You know, and I tell, you know, I love VBACs. I, I would say probably about 50% of my clients are VBACs. I, um, and I love them because when... When you work with them, they're very dedicated to doing whatever it's going to take to be prepared. And um, and when it is successful, they're so triumphant. And like you said, even if they have to have a C-section, I think that they are so grateful that we have, you know, shared the responsibility or the participation in this journey for them to to reclaim their body in that way yeah and we've given them i mean these these women are all very well educated in their in their in the options and the risks and, risks and benefits of both very. and the other thing about you know that people like michelle odont and some of the other microbiome people often say is that you know 
babies do better when they pick their own birthday. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that baby, it's the pre-labor cesareans that those babies, maybe down the road, will have more problems with autoimmune disorder or uh, adult onset diabetes or those sorts of things. Whereas it's babies that are sectioned once labor begins, even though there's slightly increased morbidity for a mother to be sectioned when when uh, labor begins, as opposed to doing it scheduled electively, it's clearly better for the baby in every circumstance, except when there's obviously a uterine rupture or something like that, which there is a risk that they're willing to take. Mm-hmm. Which sort and of that's gets their right, right? To take which that gets risk. me to the to the new ACOG guidelines, and one of the big things that's stressed in the new ACOG guidelines is the fact that blanket recommendations are not acceptable, and that and that individual preferences and individual desires and reasonable options must be considered. Um, Duh. Right. <laughs> um, but they emphasize that. Mm-hmm. Now, That's again, good. you know and I know that ACOG guidelines, when they're useful for the model by which hospitals or doctors want to practice, when their expediency or their economics or their medical legal aspects support something that the hospital approves of, they're adopted immediately. Right. And when they may go against expediency or medical legal concerns, often they need further study or they, they need to be evaluated further. And it takes decades. Because, yeah, <laughs> because ACOG all along has affirmed the fact that ultimately it's a reasonable choice and that um, they never intended their immediately available recommendation to imply that hospitals should be banning VBAC. It was never meant to do that. And they do emphasize that more in this one by specifically saying that they believe that level one facilities. Level one being? A basic hospital with no NICU and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, no necessarily, not 24-hour anesthesia on call. But essentially any hospital that allows women to labor in it should allow VBAC. Because they have to have a plan to deal with things like an abruption or a prolapse cord. Right. And and why would this be any different? And, And... to, to single out VBAC, uh, the language isn't strong enough, and Jen Camel has you know some really strong thoughts on that. If you go to her website and read some of her thoughts about how they could have made the language better, but of course we 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 don't all live in that world. Do you think it'll affect uh, what's happening in Santa Barbara at all? Santa Barbara, no. Okay. <laughs> no. Oh. Santa Barbara will nothing. I don't. You know. Again, I. I would love to have the conversation with the with the perinatal group up in Santa Barbara, but you know they don't. When we have our VBAC, uh, our VBAC, um, or ICANN meeting, big thing every year. There's one up in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. They're always invited, and they never come. Mm-hmm. And I would wish they would come because the community wants them to be there. The community respects them. I don't think there's a single woman who goes to an obstetrician in Santa Barbara who isn't doesn't go through that office. Mm-hmm. So they have an immense influence up there. Right. And it'd be really nice to hear their point of view um, rather than, than have to guess or hear it secondhand or hear it through a, a client who tells you what they were told um, by by the perinatal group up there. Right. Uh, so you like the new guidelines? You feel, yeah. You feel the, like there's the, a couple of the points that Jen points out and then I agree with her on it is one, they, they mentioned the VBAC calculator like three or four times. Which is what? Which is a mistake, <laughs> in my opinion. I'll be blunt about it. 
A VBAC calculator is a thing that you plug in different information about a woman. It gives you their chance of success of a VBAC. Hmm. All right. So I don't see how this can be used as a favorable tool. I can see how it can be misused as a skewing tool. Because what if, you know, you put stuff in there and the woman comes back, the woman only has a 40% chance of success. Well, if you, if you, if you then counsel the woman that she should have a C-section, what you're saying is that you're, you're condemning 40% of women to cesareans they don't need. Mm-hmm. And, and whether that, well, if they're saying, well, but the risk of, uh, of rupturing your uterus and all that stuff, uh, you know, makes it okay to counsel that way, they're wrong. I mean, ultimately, that's not the decision that the physician or the hospital should, should bear. What are the, what's the criteria? What do you mean? For this calculator. What well, I don't know specifically. Oh, okay. I, I, I haven't really looked at it because it's, again, for me, it's a useless piece of... <laughs> junk. Junk. It is. <laughs> we don't need to be so PC on this. No, it topic. is. It's a, it's, a, it, 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 it's a tool to be used by people who don't want to do VBAC. Right, to justify it. Right. Yes. I mean, I don't need a calculator to know in my own head when someone is a great candidate for a VBAC or, or has you know, more questionable possibilities for a VBAC. But even if someone has questionable possibilities in my own mind, if I give them the information and then they make a decision they want to try anyway, then I have an ethical obligation to support them. I think that's where it gets really gray, it feels like. It's like the ethical, I feel that way. Like if a woman wants to, to choose something, I feel like as a provider, as long as it's not out of my scope of practice in terms of my licensure, I should give her, I should say, okay, this is how I feel about it. Let's sign something that says that you're fully aware, but that she should have the ability to do that. But it doesn't seem like that's really no, and I, and I think there's how it a, goes. I, and I also think there's, a, there's an ethical out for people too. If, if a doctor doesn't feel comfortable with that, Ethically, he could say to them, I don't feel comfortable with that, but why don't you go get a consult with Dr. So-and-so down the hall or down the block right. or, or in Ventura or, <laughs> you know, or in Santa Paula? Mm-hmm. Why, you know, why don't you go someplace else as opposed to telling them they can't do it, they can't do it or that it's dangerous to be doing it mm-hmm. uh, or that their baby will suffer an injury if they do it. Mm-hmm. That's the big thing about the these, irresponsible. What's that? That it's irresponsible for them to even consider that—that that they're putting their babies—that and and, and that see that sort of statement violates everything that even that ACOG even ACOG doesn't say that they say VBAC after two is reasonable mm-hmm. and they don't say that because a baby's macrosomic or because a, a woman has twins or a breach that a VBAC is contraindicated. Mm-hmm. They actually say the opposite. So they're they're trying to support they're trying to bring it back. Um, they obviously can't mandate anything. So ACOG. ACOG can. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing about, of course, ACOG says in their thing is that, you know, home birth uh, VBACs at home are, are absolutely contraindicated. Yeah, I don't like that part. Well, the, you know, that's their, they hate home birth and they, so they are, they don't think anybody should have a birth at home. So certainly they're not going to believe that somebody with a previous cesarean section should have a birth at home. That's a good point to make with people who bring it up. The problem, of course, is you also have to look at, if you're looking at VBAC, you have to look at VBAC success rates. And you have to be honest about people. If you have a VBAC at home, as we talked about early in the podcast, you're going to have a, generally about a 90% success rate. Mm-hmm. If you have it in the hospital, that allow that even allows it, there's that great word, another word that everybody hates is allows. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a hospital that allows it, your success rate is going to be somewhere around 50, 55, 56%. 
you know, some hospitals are better than others. Some hospitals may have a 70% success rate. Some hospitals have a 20% success rate. But when you're restricted in movement, when you're not allowed to eat, when you're, when you're um, constantly interrupted, and when you're surrounded by people who are nervous. Right. That's the biggest right. one. Right. You're, it, you're not going to have as, a likely, as, as great a likelihood of success. Mm-hmm. So what I would suggest for people who want to approach their practitioner is how do you do that? How do you approach a practitioner without offending? First of all, you shouldn't have to walk on eggshells to approach your doctor. But a lot of doctors don't take kindly to um, being asked questions or having their authority challenged. So I would suggest that you do this in, in several ways. All right, um, you know we often get we often hear a woman who say I I told my I asked my doctor something and I said what are you Doctor Google, that mm-hmm. sort of you know condescending sort of thing and they'll say no. No, I, I've been looking at the NIH and I've been looking at the ACOG guidelines and they, rec- they say this and that and what's your thought about that? And, and, ask, and don't ask them for a question on the spot. Say, I'm going to leave some information with you. I would love you to look it over and then get back to me. And if they do get back to you, and they, th- that way you're not putting them on the spot. And that way if they do get back to you, um, they've obviously taken the time to do it. And that might be good for your relationship. If they don't get back to you, that just that's another red flag that says go elsewhere. Right. And it's never too late, right? No, it's never too well, the problem of course, it's never too late for someone to change, but there's a lot of practices that won't take you if you come if you come and beyond a certain point. And part of that is their policy probably put in place by their business office because they don't get paid as much if you come in late um, into their practice. It's a horrible thing. Midwives I don't think do that. I think most of us will take somebody on. Well, some midwives are nervous about... Because uh, the relationship is so important, Yeah, right? especially with a complicated case um, to take on somebody late in care where you don't have the time to develop the relationship, um, I think makes some midwives nervous. Yeah. So anyway, so that that is uh, the, uh, you know, again, if you want a more, uh, more dissecting of the ACOG policy, you can go to VBACFACTS. Com. Um, there was a great seminar just recently on uh, put together by Kristen Pascucci from uh, Birth Monopoly and Jen. They held it, and there were about a hundred over, a, like, I think over a hundred people on where Jen went went through these things. And um, you know, she's really interesting. She is she is not a VBAC advocate, and she makes it clear because advocate sounds like she's advocating for VBAC. She's not. She's a truth advocate, mm-hmm. and I think it's really important that people be given full information and then be able to choose the path that they want to take. And ACOG does affirm that in their, in their VBAC option. So, and they also get rid of the, they, they don't use strong enough language, but the immediate available thing is, is, is a straw man argument for a hospital to not allow VBAC. And it, and it should be challenged. It should be challenged. Local people should challenge their hospital. If they ban VBAC because they say they don't have 24-hour anesthesia, say ACOG doesn't say you should do that. ACOG says if you allow a laboring woman in your hospital for any reason, that you should allow VBAC. And would you support people if they were advocating for that change with their hospital, if you could? Who, me? Yeah, Of course yeah. I would. Yeah. Why wouldn't I? No, I'm just like... Is but there who a- listens to me? Is <laughs> I don't know. There's people on this podcast listening yeah, to you. Yeah, you know, I don't know. If you listen to me, send me an email telling me you listen to me at askdrstew at gmail.com. You know? Um, I'm just saying, like, if someone felt like they needed, are you saying that no one in the administrative from the hospitals would listen to you if you, if you st- 
stood behind these women? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's, about, it's a matter of access. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I, I, I'm a physician. I was in the perinatal doctor's office in Santa Barbara. Uh, the head guy wasn't there that day, but his associate was there. Mm-hmm. And she's the one that had to sign off on the values given to that biophysical profile. And I'm sure the nurse told her that their doctor is in the room with them mm-hmm. and no effort was made to come say even hello. Right. So, you know, I mean, I can understand you'd be busy, but you could always take 30 seconds. I guess that's how midwives have always felt. Yeah. Yeah. I was at the hospital recently with a client and um, I labored with her at home, but the plan was to be at the hospital. And uh, the doctor walked in the room and, oh no, she was already in the room and I walked in the room and she didn't even like make any effort to acknowledge my presence or shake my hand or anything it was really like so of course I overtly was like hey how are you it's so nice to work with you um but it was like blatantly I I'm not interested in we're here we're working I'm gonna like not be offensive to you but I don't have any interest in like I think that's a, I think that has to be that has to be you. a learned behavior because I, I I don't think that that's people's nature is to be dismissive and rude well I've heard like Allison Hill the the OB a podcast that I did with her and Elliot Berlin. She said that, that you guys, yeah, you guys are actually taught to uh, talk people out of home birth. So I don't know if maybe that trickles over into like having judgments and evaluations about midwives in general, hmm. you know, that we're just irresponsible people. Well, I'm not sure we're actually, again, I don't know. Uh, we're not officially taught to talk people out of home birth. It's the guidelines that were given. That's what she said. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> well, there, 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 um, there are the, the fantastic ethicists from Cornell University, and I use that term lightly, um, who have actually said that, that, you, that the beneficence-based model where we respect informed consent and reasonable decision-making should be trumped by the professional responsibility model where it's your responsibility to talk people out of home birth. All right. Now, I, I don't know where they're coming up with that data. I don't know what supports that data. I mean, there are bad outcomes in home births. There are bad outcomes in hospital births, right? I don't think that people who have home birth have exceptionally worse outcomes, and I think they have, in many cases, far better outcomes and far more satisfaction than people who have hospital births, but that's never considered. We talked about it earlier. Mm -hmm. The desire of the women, those three women, to have the opportunity was denied for all of them in a conventional setting. And they all got the opportunity. One was successful in the hospital. Two ended up with cesareans at complete dilation for legitimate reasons, all with good outcomes. What's the, what's the big deal? Well, I mean, I, I just always go back to choice. And I, and I go back to that there are a lot of different ways to um, look at your medical care. And Western medicine is just one of those ways. And I just believe that we have a right to choose how we care for our body. And that goes across how I feel about all of it. And we should never dictate what someone feels. And um, the analogy that I've used and I've heard other people use, like if you were a cancer patient and you were given the option for chemotherapy, no one like challenges the perspective that you might say, I'm going to decline that 
But somehow with maternity care, it's very, it's handled very differently because um, of the other life factor, I think. But there are a lot of, uh, you know, it's a topic we could go into more deeply at another time, but there are a lot of perspectives about why that woman who's birthing that baby is completely disregarded in terms of her choice. So, so yeah. thank you for that, Bliss. You're welcome. Good summary today. I hope that people <laughs> who listened uh, got something out of this. Uh, uh, use good judgment. Uh, understand that feedback is not this horrible. I mean, I think anybody listening already knows all that. And realize that, and realize that, you know, although ACOG does some stupid stuff sometimes, Sometimes they do stuff that is, you know, not stupid. And when they put this guideline out and the revised guideline, although they, they did say things like the VBAC calculator and anti-home birth and, and certain things that they didn't come out and they didn't come out strong enough on certain points, overall, I think their heart was in the right place. And that's ultimately a, a, a good step for uh, the women that we care for. Yeah. Okay. So if John will put the music on. Cue, <laughs> <Thank you>, John. <laughs> Q John. Uh, again, this has been Dr. Stu's podcast. This is number 120. And it's been great uh, having you listen. I really appreciate the, the listen and the feedback um, that I get from all of you. Uh, it, 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 it is heartwarming to know that all over the world, there are actually people listening to what I have to say. Because as I said before, I got four kids and if I could get them to listen to what I said once in a while, it'd be great. So uh, enjoy yourselves. Have a great week. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Again, Dr. Stu's podcast number 120. You can reach me at askdrstu at gmail.com. You can reach Bliss at birthingbliss.com. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Facebook. Take Thank care, you. everybody. <laughs>